Now, friends, as we come to this fifth chapter, we're still in this first section of 2 Corinthians in the comfort of God. Now we have here God's comfort in the ministry of martyrdom for Christ. We've seen God's comfort in the glorious ministry of Christ in chapter 3. And what a wonderful place it is that today it's an unveiled Christ that we declare. And then we have God's comfort in the ministry of suffering for Christ, chapter 4. Now we have God's comfort in the ministry of martyrdom for Christ. And we want to look at that. Now I want to read verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I want you to notice what Paul is saying here. He's not saying we hope that we have an earthly house, or we expect to have an earthly house, or even we believe that we have an earthly house. Do you notice the way that he put it here, he says, we know that we have. And believe me, friends, that is a pretty big no. That is a no. That means that he knows by experience. He knows because of the fact the Spirit of God has made it real to him. Now he says, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle. And the word tabernacle is skene. It actually means tent. That was the word, by the way, used for the tabernacle in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament tabernacle, Mosaic tabernacle, is called a skene, a tabernacle. It's a flimsy sort of thing. Now, what he's saying here is something that is quite wonderful. This verse has always been a big question mark to me. I have never been too dogmatic about the interpretation of it, and I may not be today, but I'm now come to the conviction that what he's talking about here is not a temporary body. I've always suggested that as a possibility, that if this earthly house of this tabernacle and this tent that we live in, and that means this body of ours, that if this dissolves, we have a building of God, a house not made with hand. And then I thought for many years that it could be that he'd have sort of a temporary. You know, you take your car into the garage to be worked on, and they let you have a loaner. You drive that around. Well, the Lord, until he gives us our new bodies, well, he's going to give us a temporary one. I never liked that, but that seemed to be what he was saying. But I want you to notice that that's not true. What Paul is talking about here is one that is eternal in the heavens. This is not temporary. He's talking about that new body that we're going to get. Now, Let's look at this for just a moment, because very frankly, friends, this is a very important section of the Word of God. The thing that is all important and something that we need to have clearly fixed in our minds and in our hearts, that there is an outward man and an inward man. Paul talked about that in this last chapter, by the way, that our outward man perish. Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And a great many people misunderstand that. I had a letter from a man. He says the Bible is filled with contradictions. And he said, I can prove it because he says, I get so tired hearing you say that so-and-so has gone to be with the Lord. And then you talk about the body is going to be raised or the person is going to be raised from the dead down here. And he says, now that's a contradiction. Well, you see, this man has missed the entire point, that it's the body that's put in the grave, but the individual, the real person, has gone to be with Christ if that individual is a believer. You see, the things that are seen, they're temporal. You say, you've seen me, or maybe you haven't. Now, many listeners just make a trip when I'm speaking in certain sections. In fact, a 
family told me up in Ohio, well, they said, you know, we made a trip here, and they drove 50 miles to just see how you look. Do you want to know something? They didn't see me. <laughs> they saw the house I live in, this old tent I live in. I want to be very frank with you. This tent I live in is becoming a very weak tent. It's flapping around. It's becoming very weak. The picture that I suggested to you was back in Ecclesiastes, and I hope that sometimes you might look at that. And we'll be coming to it one of these days, and the picture that's given our old age is really something. It says, the keepers of the house shall tremble. This old house of mine. Who are the keepers? Well, these knees of mine. They're beginning to tremble. And the strong men shall bow themselves. The strong men. Well, who are those? Oh, these are the shoulders. They're beginning. My wife says to me every now and then, she says, stand up straight. Well, I don't stand up straight. And then it goes on to say, the grinders shall cease. (laughs) Your teeth are going to fall out, friends, because they're few. And they that look out of the windows be darkened. And I'm now wearing trifocals. Remember when I first put on glasses? No focal about it at all, just glasses. But now it's trifocal. May I say to you, the sound of the grinding is low. And for some men and women, you know, the voice becomes very low, becomes very squeaky. That's old age. That's the thing that's taking place in all of us. Now, this is the outward man, you see. But there is an inward man. And that inward man is spiritual. And it's difficult for us to understand that. Now, God is a person, but God is not physical or material. God's a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, the Lord Jesus said. And the psalmist says, he maketh his angels spirit, Psalm 104, 4. And I hear people say today, I don't like getting old. (laughs) Oh, my friend, I'm enjoying it. In fact, the matter is, I'm enjoying retiring from a church because I'm doing now what I want to do. And it's wonderful to do that. My doctor told me, he says, I want you to do what you want to do. And when my wife tells me to do something, I say, look, my doctor tells me to do what I want to do. Now, I don't want to do what you want me to do, which I can't get her to buy that package all the time. Now, may I say to you, it's wonderful. Every passing year now is bringing me closer, you know, to him. And it's quite wonderful. And then I'm going to see him someday. I'm going to see the face of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) I'm going to see him, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And I want to tell you, friends, I rejoice. And I'll be very frank with you. I don't have as much conflict today with the world of flesh and the devil as I used to have. I think they've given up on me. And may I say to you, it's wonderful. This old house is getting old. (laughs) As someone asked President Adams years ago, says, how do you feel? Oh, he says, I feel fine. But this old house that I live in, it's really getting feeble. The shingle's coming out on top. And the foundation seems to be coming out from underneath. But my friend, we have a house eternal in the heavens. We got one up yonder, that body that he's going to give us someday. This old body sown a natural body. It's going to be raised a spiritual body. Now he says something here that's quite wonderful also. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. I'm groaning in this body. You just can't help but groan. And he goes on to say, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. I built several years ago a study up over my garage, which is right next to the house. I couldn't study at the church. It just was an office. And so I transferred my study there. And I sleep up there. And sometimes when I start down, there's steps there. It's about a little over half a floor. And when I come down, I noticed just a few short years ago that it wasn't easy to come down of a morning when you first get up. And I'd groan. Every step I'd take, I'd groan. And my wife told me, she says, you ought not do that. I said, well, 
It's scriptural to groan, because Paul says we groan in this house, and I want to groan in this when I'm in, because he says that it's scriptural to groan. And my friend, may I say to you, we can do a lot of groaning in these houses of ours, and it will be scriptural, by the way. But he says something here in verse 3 that's quite unusual. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, that's an interesting thing. One of these days, he's going to call his own out of the world. And those that are his own are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and we're going to stand before him. How? Well, clothed in his righteousness. But everybody that's going to be raised won't be clothed with his righteousness because he was delivered for our fences and he was raised for our justification, that is, our righteousness. And they haven't accepted it. They've rejected him. And therefore, we are told that there is a resurrection both of the just and of the unjust. That's what Paul mentions in Acts 25, 15. And then the Lord Jesus himself said in John 5, 29, "...they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation." Now, he speaks here of a resurrection of when you're going to be clothed. Paul says, I want to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And my friend, have you ever wondered how you're going to stand in his presence someday? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ, accepted in the beloved? Oh, how wonderful it is. That is our state, you see, and that is the way we'll have to appear before him. Now, will you notice here that there is a resurrection, though, of the great white throne. And that is the loss that are brought there. They are not clothed with his righteousness. They're going to be judged according to their works. That's the way they wanted it. Actually, the Bible doesn't mention just one judgment day. There are really about eight great judgments that are mentioned in Scripture. There's the cross. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. Why? Because he bore it on the cross, but is passed from death to life. Then there is self-judgment. We're told in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one, if we judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. And then there's chastisement. The Lord takes us to the woodshed. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son he receives. Hebrews 12:6, And then the believer's works are going to be judged. We're going to see that in this chapter. And then the nation Israel's to be judged. Gentile nations are to be judged. Fallen angels are to be judged. And then there's the great white throne where the lost are brought. And they appear naked there. That is, they're not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to say, verse 4, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan. If you feel like groaning, you groan, my friend. It's all right. That's scriptural. Being burdened. Yes, we are. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, we're just groaning in these bodies. I'm not groaning because of the fact I'm not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I am. I've accepted him. It's my Savior, and he's my only hope that I have. Now he says, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Now you see, he's let me know there's more to follow. The best is yet to come. But he's given us the Holy Spirit today. So that down here in these weak bodies, with all of our feebleness, all of our frailty, he's given us the Holy Spirit. That's just an earnest Earnest money is the down payment you put. He's purchased us. He's made a down payment. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer today. And one of these days, we're going to move out of this old house of mine, and then we're going to meet the Lord in the air, my friend. How wonderful this opens up, this vista to us. Now he goes on to say something else here. Verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we're at home in the body... We're absent from the Lord. Now, if we're home in the body, well, that is, I'm at home in my body. How about you? I mean, I feel perfectly at home. I 
like this body of mine. As a little fellow, I had to learn to walk. I've got a scar on the side of my temple. I fell against a bed, and I was learning to walk, my mother said. Well, I've got used to this body of mine. I'm at home in this body. But I want to tell you, when I'm at home in this body, I'm absent from the Lord. That's the thing that he's saying now, that whilst we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. But will you notice, he says, but we walk by faith and not by sight. Somebody says, well, how do you know that? Well, we're walking by faith. Well, I take his word for it. I'd rather take his word than anyone else. Faith is taking God at his word. We're living in the body and we're absent for the Lord. And he goes on to say, I'm confident, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord is the better translation. Now, my friend, the important thing is this, that when you die, the soul doesn't go to sleep. soul never even dies. You go to be with Christ. And the body is put to sleep. But somebody says, do you have Scripture for that? Oh, yes. Uh, sleep in Jesus. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be chained. Now, that's not sleep unconsciousness, you see. The body that sleeps, and it's the body that's going to be raised. Resurrection doesn't refer to the soul or spirit. First, to the body. The word itself means anastasis, means to stand up. And so we walk by faith today. That's the way you'll have to walk. And so Paul says, We're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. <laughs> May I say that Paul could say, We're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to it, but I want to be very careful. Paul says, verse 9, Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. How accepted? Well, he's going to talk about it. And the word here is ambitious. We should be ambitious. Wherefore, we ambitious that whether present or absent, we might be accepted of him. And that's an interesting word, by the way. You find it over in the Thessalonian epistle, where he says over there in the first epistle, actually, it's be ambitious to mind your own business. <laughs> and that's pretty good, is it not? And here it's, we're ambitious, whether present or absent. Now, that is the thing that we should have in mind, that we should be ambitious, that we should labor in a way that we're going to be accepted of him. Now, this is not ambition, to become some great somebody. You see, we're accepted here and I think I ought to call attention to this. We are accepted in the Beloved, Paul said to the Ephesians. And all of us are accepted in Christ, accepted in the Beloved. But this is something else. This is to be accepted of the Lord. Will you notice that? Of him, be accepted of it. Now, there's a difference of being accepted in Christ and being accepted of Christ. There's quite a difference. Now, accepting in Christ, that's my standing before God. God sees me in him, and he's made unto me all that I need, wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, he's my perfection. God sees me in Christ, and I'm completing him. And you can't add to completeness. When you got 100%, you've got it. And we have Christ accepted in the Beloved. But how about being accepted of Him? Now, that's my standing, you see. Accepted in Him, that is my standing. Accepted of Him, that has to do with my state. Now, what is your ambition today, by the way? Is your ambition to be accepted of Christ? Now, this kind of ambition doesn't mean that you're going to crawl over everybody and step on them in order to get to the top. I'm afraid we have in Christian work some folk like that today. Want to make a name for themselves. Dr. G. Camel Morgan tells about how he wrestled with this problem. He was a school teacher when he was called as a minister. And it was for him a very solemn moment. Now, he was told then 
In fact, he felt the Lord was saying to him, you have been set apart definitely for the ministry of the Word. Now, do you want to be a great preacher or do you want to be my servant? And the first thing that Dr. Morgan said, he said, I want to be a great preacher. And that ought to be a wonderful ambition. But after a while, the Lord began to press it in upon him. Do you want to be a great preacher? Do you want to be my servant? And then he finally came to it. He says, well, I can't be a servant and a great preacher both, I guess, but I've got to make a choice. And finally, he said, oh, blessed Lord, I'd rather be your servant than anything else, and I'm willing to be an obscure preacher. Well, in my book, God made of Dr. G. Campbell Morgan not only his servant, but he made him a great preacher. My friends, we sometimes think that our ambition ought to be to do something great for God. God says, I just want you to be my servant. That's all. I want you to be that. And when you and I can say, Lord, just take men, make men, break men, do what you will with me. You remember Jeremiah put it like this in Jeremiah, the 45th chapter, verse 5. He says, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. That's putting it plain enough, isn't it? My friend, are you trying to get great things for yourself? Oh, there are a lot of ambitious preachers. There are a lot of ambitious laymen. There are a lot of ambitious Christian workers today. There are a lot of ambitious Christians, but it's a selfish ambition. You want to be God's servant? Well, my friend, if you do, then you may be able to do something that he's going to be able to reward us for. And I'll be honest with you. I'm beginning to become just a little worried about this. I want to make sure that I'm his servant. I'd like to be his servant now. Well, may I say to you that I'm going to have to stand before him, and you are. Now, that ought to be motivation for you to serve him today. Are you doing something today? And when I say today, I use that as a relative term. In this day in which we're living, are you doing something that he can accept? When you come in his presence, you'd be able to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. There are actually three motivations that God gives to believers for serving him down here, for witnessing for him, for getting his word out to others. Now, this is the first one. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body, that is, while we're down here, according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, you'll be rewarded according to the way you serve him down here. And the very wonderful thing is that this is a motive for serving Christ, because this is a report that we're going to have to give to him someday. And he says in Revelation 22:12, "Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be." Now he's talking here to those that are his believers, and they're going to be brought, as he says here, before the judgment seat of Christ. Now that's the bema. That's not that thronus, the throne of God, the great white throne. And he says here that we labor down here, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is the Bema. When I was in Corinth, several pictures were made of me by the tour group. I've been sent several pictures by some that took them there, standing on that Bema. That was a place where the judges of the city met, and they judged the citizens that had done certain things. It wasn't a question of life or death there. Now, this is not the great white throne, the judgment seat of Christ. It's for believers. It's to see whether they're going to receive a reward or not. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who's he talking to? Believers. That we may receive the things done in the body. That is, while you're down here, my friend, you're going to be judged by the way you've lived the Christian life, how you've lived in these bodies down here. 
When we go into his presence, we're through with this old body. But my friend, how did you use it? How did you live down here? And therefore, Paul made it very clear that he wanted to stay down here. And because of that, Paul could say, as he said to the Philippians, you remember, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he says, to go and be with Christ is far better. But he said, I'd like to stay down here. I'd like to, for your sake, I'd like to preach the gospel of Christ a little longer. And I had a very good friend here in Southern California when I got cancer, wrote me, said, now others are praying that you be spared. I'm praying the Lord will take you because I know you're ready. I said, wait a minute. You let the Lord decide that. It's between me and the Lord. You stay out of this. Because I'm like that boy years ago in my Southland. The preacher one night says, how many want to go to heaven? Everybody put up their hands but that boy. Preacher looked down and said to him, don't you want to go to heaven? He said, sure, I want to go to heaven. But I thought you was getting up a load for the night. And friends, I'm like that boy. I didn't want to go right away when I had cancer. Paul didn't want to go. He said, I want to stay. I want to stay in this body and do as much as I possibly can. Friends, Paul says, I believe I'd rather live a little longer and preach Christ to people. And he says, I want Christ to be magnified in my body, whether present or absent. I want Christ to be magnified, that I might be accepted of him, that I might receive a reward. And believers ought to live, by the way, in the light of that. Now, let me move on, because he gives us a second one here. And let me read that for you. He says, "...knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we're made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciousness." Now, will you notice that? He says, "...knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade man." Now... That word terror, I think, could better be translated fear. And there's a great deal said in the Bible about the fear of the Lord. Fact of the matter is, we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, liberalism today, its one tenet is, well, you don't need to be afraid of God. God is just a nice, sweet, kind old man, and you need to... Remember that, and you can just treat him most anyway. He's very indulgent, you know. And liberalism teaches the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. And in my book, that's the most damnable doctrine that there is today. But you know what the Word of God says in Hebrews 10:31? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And today we have given ersatz bread to people, and it's a nice, sunshiny gospel that's being preached. But I want to tell you, my friend, our God is a holy God, a righteous God, and he loves you. He wants to save you. But I want to tell you, if you don't come his way, you're going to come before him in judgment. And therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade man. And today, there's many a pulpit that doesn't have a sermon on hell, has no sermon on punishment, has no sermon on judgment. And as a result, that is probably a lost note in Protestantism today. And the Lord Jesus said that he'd come to seek and to save that which was lost. And my friend, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, we need to recognize that this is something that we're going to be held accountable for. For we command not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. 
Now, that is verse 12 that I've just read. In other words, my friend, if you are declaring the full counsel of God, you can do it in a loving manner. You don't have to, you know, bring down thunder and lightning. But we need to recognize today and to state it very clearly that men are lost. And if we do say that, well, we're not commending ourselves. We're not trying to become popular, by the way. I'm always afraid of this soft, soapy type of thing that we're hearing today. There's so much of that today that goes the way of psychology. How you can become a well-adjusted human being. Oh, we hear so much about that. You mustn't have bad vibrations. You must have good vibrations. Oh, may I say to you, friend, and I say this very kindly to you, but if you are without Christ today, my friend, it's not vibrations that you need. And it's not just a lot of psychological haircutting that you need in your life. You're a hell-doomed sinner, and you're on the way to hell. You need Christ. Now, that may not be popular, but that's what my Bible says. And that What I'm teaching is the Word of God. We commend not ourselves again unto you. We don't want you to just glory in us. The important thing is, is to declare the whole counsel of God. And that is motivation enough to get the Word of God out. That's the thing that would arouse many a sleepy church. I think that we've told people about the need. There are books written on that, and missionaries come and plead And tell about the need out yonder. And today I say it on the radio. My, the need in this land of ours. The United States is one of the greatest mission fields today. But I have trouble convincing people of that. People are on the way to hell. You're rubbing shoulders with them every day. Now, will you notice we move on down here. He says, whether we be beside ourselves, it's to God. You may think I'm crazy. Paul said You may think I'm crazy, but I'm doing this for God. And you may think I'm being sober. Well, it's for your sake. That's what Paul says. Now he gives us his third motive. And this is also motivation. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now the love of Christ constrains us. This is a word that has been misunderstood. The thought that has been suggested is that the love of Christ sort of restricts us. It straps us down. That's not the word Paul is using here. What he's saying here, it's the love of Christ that's pushing us out. It's the love of Christ that's motivating us. It's the love of Christ that causes us to give the word of God out. That is motivation, you see. The love of Christ constraineth us. Because we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. This is the thing that sent that man, Paul the Apostle, out to the ends of the earth. Now, will you notice as we move on here, the gospel, though, has to be given out, friends, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, this is the gospel. The love of Christ constrains us. And the gospel is to set forth the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is the facts of the gospel And that when we preach this to man, we call upon man to be reconciled to God now. And this is what the gospel is, that God now says to you to be reconciled. Now, I want you to notice something that he says here. We thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. That actually means mankind is under the sentence of death. When Adam was yonder in the Garden of Eden, he was our federal head. He's the head of that old creation. And that old creation was on trial in Adam. And God said to him, Thou shalt not eat of it. In the day that you eatest of it, 
dying, you're going to die. And Adam just deliberately disobeyed God. He came under the sentence of death. And when he did, he took the entire human race down with him. For all were represented in him. And you and I have been born into a family of death. All mankind now is under the sentence of death. Someone has said the very moment that gives you life begins to take it away from you. David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he meant not the end of life, but he said that all of his life he'd been walking down through this great canyon of death. And it got darker and narrower until finally he'd have to go through that doorway of death. Now, how do you illustrate this? There have been many ways of illustrating this. Dr. Ironside used to have a wonderful illustration. I know Dr. Schaefer did. Let me give you an illustration, and I'll give it in my own words here, my own way. Back of where I live and where we have our radio headquarters is a lovely range of mountains called the Sierra Madre Mountains. And up here on the top of Mount Wilson, there is an observatory, one of the famous observatories, the Hale Observatory. However, I think they call the one now down the coast near San Diego that also. But here is Mount Wilson. Now, God created man. He put him up on a high mountain like that. And suppose we're thinking in terms of that. Up yonder on top of Mount Wilson, in a paradise, God placed man and placed Adam. And Adam was up there. Now, he had everything that was good for him, but he had one thing that he was not to do. He was a sinless man. But he was told there was something he was not to do. He did that. He fell. We speak of the fall of Adam. Well, he came tumbling down off of that mountain, down where we are down here. We live down here where it's around 700 feet. It's about, oh, I think 6,000 feet up there. He took quite a tumble, you can see. Now, down here, he began to bring into the world a race of people. Now, they don't come into the world way up yonder where Adam was, on the plain where he was, where he was innocent. But we come on the plain down here. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he came into a world where he found us dead in trespasses and sin. He comes into the world, but not way up yonder on that high plain on top of Mount Wilson. You see, he's the sinless one. But he didn't come into a sinless place. He came down here where we are. And he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But he came down here to save sinners. Now, he can't find any man on that plane of holiness way up there because we've all fallen down to this low plane. Now, what's he going to do? Well, he goes down into the place of death where man is. And he died for all. Why? Because men were dead. And he came down here into this place of death. And he takes believers up with him in resurrection life. And somebody says, well, he's going to take us back up here under the top of Mount Wilson. Oh, no, he's not. He's now taking us to the heavenlies. We are now seated in the heavenlies. And he's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if Christ died for all, And we're all dead. He now took our place. And if we're going to live, it's going to be by faith in him that those through faith should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and he rose again. Now, my friend, we know no man now after the flesh. Therefore, out yonder in the world, a just lost man. Oh, this man's a Ph.D., Teaches over here at Caltech. Brilliant fella. Well, he's a lost man if he's not in Christ. And here's a man down here on the gutter. We know no man after the flesh. That's what he says here. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. That is, according to this old nature, they're all lost. And they are today, as he said, he died for all of them. Christ died for the man 
That's the Ph.D. died for the man down yonder in the gutter. He died for all of them. Therefore, we know no man after the flesh. Now he says, though, we've known Christ after the flesh. I believe that Paul did know Christ after the flesh. I think that he was present at the crucifixion of Christ. I can't imagine that brilliant young Pharisee, you know, not being yonder in Jerusalem at that particular time. He was present then. Now Christ has come and gone into this place of death. And those that will trust him, what does he do with them? Well, he doesn't take them back up there to the mountain to come tumbling down again. He takes them all the way back to the heavenlies. Now that, for the child of God, puts a new interpretation on the human family. And I want you to see this because actually this is the only solution and the only thing that will enable us to overcome racial and color and social lines. He says, henceforth, we know no man after the flesh. We do not know that man over yonder as being a black man. We do not know this man over here as a yellow man. And this man over here is a white man. We do not know this man over here is a rich man. We do not know this man over here is a poor man. What we know is, we know all of these men, black, yellow, white, brown, rich, and poor, male and female, we know them all as sinners, all on one plane now. We don't know them after the flesh. Now, that was the thing you remember James said. He says, when a rich man comes in your midst with a ring on and fine clothing, you give him an honored place and you put the poor fellow in the back. Now, he says, that's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because as children of God, we look upon the whole human family as being sinners. Actually, the line has been raced out between Jew and Gentile, so that both Jew and Gentile, we're all sinners before God. And the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not know any man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh. Now, he came down here 1,900 years ago, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, walked in Galilee, began his ministry in Cana of Galilee, and went to Jerusalem, died on a cross there, buried outside the city in Joseph's tomb, rose again the third day and appeared to those that were his own and ascended back into heaven. Now, we don't know him anymore, friends, as the man of Galilee. There's no man of Galilee today. And a great many people this past Christmas made their annual trek to Bethlehem, places crowded at Christmas time. Well, of course, Jerusalem is crowded at Easter time, and they go there. I do not know what they're looking for. He wasn't there this past Christmas. That is, the little baby wasn't. We don't know him anymore after the flesh. Where is he? Well, right now, friends, at this very moment, he's up under God's right hand. He's the glorified Christ. Though we've known him after the flesh, we now henceforth know him no more. We don't know him as that. He's the glorified Christ. Now, therefore, it's not an identification with the one who walked down here 1,900 years, but it's my identification with him yonder in glory. And for that reason, we should take the place of death down here. Now, he goes on and makes then this tremendous statement, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new now, let me change that word creature to creation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, I recognize that this verse is quoted a great deal today. I've heard it in testimony meetings. Someone quotes this verse, and they tell about their conversion. Now, they no longer indulge in certain bad habits that they had before. And they consider that since they do not indulge in the bad habits, a fulfillment of this verse. Now, may I say to you, and I want to be very careful now, if you and I are a new creation in Christ Jesus, 
What are the old things that have passed away? Well, friends, the old things that have passed away, remember we were talking about the bottom of the hill where all of us are as sinners? Now we have trusted Christ. Those old relationships have passed away. We're no longer identified with Adam. We're no longer identified with the world system. We are now identified with Christ. We've been baptized into the body of believers, and we belong to him. These are the old things that have passed away, and the new things now are the new relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the thing that is important. Now, I want to be very practical about this. Let's get right down now where the rubber meets the road, right down to the nitty-gritty, friends. Somebody says, that's a wonderful verse. But how may I know absolutely whether I'm a new creation in Christ? Well, will you listen to what the Lord Jesus said? Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but pass from death unto life. Now, do you trust him? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? You sure you have? (laughs) Well, then, if you've trusted him, then what does he say to you? He has eternal life. And he's not going to come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. He said that. Do you believe it? All right, then. You're a new creation, aren't you? On the basis of experience? Well, I hope you have a little experience. But the basis is not on experience, but on what the Word of God has to say. You do not any longer belong to the old creation that fell in Adam. The new creation stands in Christ. And if you're in him, my friend, you're in him. Oh, you and I are in the place of danger today, place of temptation. And we may fail in many, many ways. But the wonderful thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us. Now he's going to talk about that. He says, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I want you to look at this, what is known as the ministry of reconciliation. This ministry of reconciliation is actually God's call to lost men everywhere to come to him with all their sin, all their burdens, all their problems, all their difficulties, and be reconciled to him. Now, I want us to look here at this matter of reconciliation. It's used twice in this verse. It's used twice in the next verse. And it's used once in the next verse. And the last verse sums it all up, verse 21. So now we're in a very important section right here. And just for a moment, let's look at this, because this sets before us in a very wonderful way what the ministry of reconciliation is. Now, this ministry of reconciliation is very important. It's so important that we need to recognize today the place that it occupies. God has reconciled the world unto himself. Now, reconciliation is not salvation. It doesn't mean the salvation at all. Reconciliation here, it's a big word. It's a six-cylinder word. It means to change completely. And it's the ministry of changing completely. That means inside out upside down, right side up. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, will you notice that there is the Godward side of reconciliation? All things are of God. He hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ 
and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of changing completely. But who's changing completely? Now, will you notice this? To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, here is something very important, and I don't want you to miss it. God is never said to be reconciled. God never changes completely. (laughs) He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it says here that he hath reconciled us to himself. Well, who's reconciled? Why, the world has been reconciled. God has reconciled the world. Now, you look at the world for just a moment, and it's going on its sinful way. Everyone is turned to his own way, we're told. Now, how has God changed the world? Well, it's his attitude, his relationship, and his dealing. It is through Christ that the world is reconciled to God, and it's reconciled by the death of Christ. That is the thing that he has done, you see. This marvelous ministry of reconciliation. It's the work that he's done. And I think probably it might be well to call in another verse at this particular point. And I'm going over to Colossians 1.21 and let you listen to that for just a moment. I hadn't intended to turn to this, but will you listen to it? Let me drop back and read verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, when we're told that every knee's going to bow to him, it'd be things in heaven, in earth, and under the earth. But you see here, the hell's not reconciled. This, my friend, is the world and heaven and all of his creatures now have been reconciled to him. In what way? Well, in you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Now, the death of Christ is what reconciled the world to God. Now, God's not reconciled. God hasn't changed. But the world has been put in a different position. Why? Because Christ died. You see, when Adam sinned back there in the Garden of Eden, a holy God just couldn't reach down and save him. God had to do something about his sin. God had to judge man. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And God told Adam, in the day you eat thereof, you'll die. Well, he died that very day spiritually, and 900 years later, he died physically. He died spiritually, no capacity to God, alienated and separated from God. And that's the condition of the world. God would have to judge it. But now, God has his arms outstretched to a lost world. And he's saying to a lost world, you can come to me. The worst sinner in the world can come to him. Today, doesn't make any difference who you are. You can come to him. It means that a holy God that must judge us now can reach down and save us if we'll come to him. Now, the picture is simply this. When Christ died on the cross, a holy God turned around to the world. He's not reconciled. He felt that way before. And all the sacrifices pointed to the coming of Christ, and God never had but one way of saving sinners, those that would turn to him. And now he's committed this word of reconciliation. And who is the reconciliation for? Well, you see, God is turned toward man today. You don't have to do anything to win him over. God's not a policeman that's around the corner with a billy club wanting to hit you on the head. God is not actually angry with you. He doesn't hate you. God loves you. (laughs) Remember that woman that they brought to the Lord Jesus, 
coordinate chapter of the Gospel of John. And you remember the Lord Jesus said to that crowd of hypocritical religious leaders, he said to them, you that are without sin, you throw the first stone. And that crowd departed. You know why? It says he wrote down something on the earth there, wrote in the sand there. And it's very interesting. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah seventeen thirteen says, They that depart from me shall be written on the earth. <laughs> and those old boys there, I think one old Pharisee, it says beginning with the old and then down to the young. The old had more sense than the young. The young, they hung around a little too long. But the old fellas, and the Lord Jesus would write down one old fella. Nobody knew that he'd had an affair with a woman over yonder in Corinth. <laughs> and our Lord knew all about it. He just wrote down the name of the girl. This old Pharisee looked over and he saw that name written down. He said, <clears throat> I remembered I had another engagement. And he tore out in another direction. And before long, they're all gone except one person. Who is that? The Lord Jesus. The only one that could have thrown a stone at her, he didn't throw a stone at her. What did he say to her? He said to her, where are those that condemn you? Well, she said, they're not. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, he's reconciled. He's not shutting his eyes to sin. He died for the sins of that woman. He said to her, go and sin no more. My friend, God has got his arms outstretched to you. And that's what he says here then. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now, what is the message? Well, the message today is that we're ambassadors. Now, let's look at that for just a moment. Who is an ambassador? Well, Webster says it's a minister of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government, a sovereign as the official representative of his own government, our sovereign. Now, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're in a foreign land. Peter says we're pilgrims and strangers down here. Paul in Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven, and we're ambassadors down here. And you know, when an ambassador is present in a government, it means they're on friendly relationship. God's still friendly with this world. Well, one of these days he's going to call his ambassadors home. Then judgment will begin. Now, you see, when man sinned, God and holiness turn. But God loved man. And when Christ died on the cross, God now can hold out his arm and say, you can come. Now, we are ambassadors. And what are we to do? Well, we're just to tell you, folks, that he'll save you. All God's asking you to do is to turn to him. Well, God's not going to try to get even with you. He's not going to strike you. doesn't want a punishment. doesn't want to lay a hand on you. Oh, if you are his child and sin, you won't get by with it. But, my friend, this is a great day today. We can just say to you, be ye reconciled to God. And all he asks you to do is turn to him. Why? Because he bore it all for you. On him, almighty vengeance fell. That would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. He's reconciled. You don't have to shed tears to win him over. Evangelist friend of mine's always trying to get people to cry. I have a lot of fun with him. I ask him, how many tears do you have to shed to get God's heart solved? Oh, he said, McGee, don't be ridiculous. I said, I'm not being you are. And if it takes 12 tears then Lebanon won't do. But that's silly. He said it's silly. I say it's silly too. You don't have to shed tears. God's heart's soft. He loves you. He wants to save you. Why? Well, he hath made him to be sin for us. He took my place down here, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, He's given me his place, clothed in his righteousness. Let me put it like this. He took my hell down here, and I might have his heaven up yonder. He did that for me. 
My friend, he's saying the same thing to you today. He's saying, be reconciled. Why don't you turn around to him? Why don't you come to him? Why don't you trust him? He won't lay a hand on you, but he bore it all for you. He'll take you in his hand, and you'll never perish if you come to him. Oh, my friend, this is such a wonderful word. Have you been able to get it out to anyone else? Honestly, Christian today, whoever you are, wherever you are, however you are, what are you doing today to get this word of reconciliation out to a lost world? God is reconciled. world's reconciled to him. But you're going to have to turn around. And by faith, you're going to have to come to him. And let's get this word out, friends. And if you're not engaged elsewhere, help us get it out today. There's a lot of folk want to hear it. We found that out.